0: dollars. That's the cost of corruption each year in the form of bribes and stolen money, according to the United Nations. And look around the world and there is no shortage of examples. Past president of Indonesia, Mohamed saherto thought to have filched up to $35 billion from his people. Past president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, thought to have embezzled up to $10 billion. And this is not a problem of the past. The Malaysian Development Bank, 1MDB, is at the centre of a still unfolding scandal of corruption and money laundering, with allegations that up to $4.5 billion was appropriated from the country's coffers. The amounts stolen are staggering. But they pale into insignificance compared to the sums taken from ordinary Russians by President Putin and his cronies. That's the opinion of former financier turned campaigner Bill Browder. He used to be a capitalist, driven by money, making millions. But all that changed. I asked him to start at the beginning.
1: So I moved to Russia right after the Berlin Wall came down. I set up an investment fund uh, called the Hermitage Fund. It grew from nothing to becoming the largest investment fund in the country. However, the companies I was investing in all turned out to be crooked. Russian companies were crooked, and the managements of these companies, the oligarchs, were stealing money in the billions of dollars out the back door. And so I started to challenge the corruption um, in order to be a responsible investor. And what what year was this? Um, I got there in 1996. We started openly challenging the corruption in 1999. And for a while, when Vladimir Putin first came to power, he liked the fact that we were challenging corruption because we were going after his enemies. The oligarchs. The oligarchs were stealing money from me and stealing power from him. And even though I've never met Putin, there's an expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And so he would, he would come in with all guns blazing against the oligarchs whenever I would expose them from about 1999 uh, to 2003.
0: And so, when you say these oil oligarchs were stealing money, how do they do it?
1: Well, for example, Gazprom—it's um, the largest gas company in Russia—still big chunk owned by the state, a majority owned by the state. So, so Gazprom um, has a bunch of enormous gas fields. Let's say they—they they would the management of the company would stick a gas field into a subsidiary company, and then one day the subsidiary company would come along and say. Um, uh, to the parent company, we'd like to buy a couple of Range Rovers. And um, the parent company would say, oh, no, no, we can't do that too expensive. And so they say, okay, we're going to do a new share issue. And so they say, for $200,000, we're going to sell new shares equal to 50% of the company. And Gazprom, the parent company, won't participate. And then the brother of the CEO buys the new shares um, for two hundred thousand dollars, and ends up owning half of a gas field that's say worth four billion dollars that he paid two hundred thousand dollars for.
0: Is that a real example?
1: That's a real example.
0: And because Gazprom, majority owned by the state, that's money that should have gone to taxpayers, Russian <laughs> citizens, and didn't. It was taken
1: by the brother of the CEO. Half of the company was owned by the state; the other half of the company was owned by people like me. Everybody was getting robbed, and um, it shouldn't have happened. And and um, and so the best way to stop it from happening was to take that example, share it with a journalist. Journalist writes it up. All of a sudden, um, there's a scandal. And after enough of these scandals... And
0: how many scandals were there? You've given us an example of Gazprom that $200,000, he owns half of a gas field worth billions. Is
1: this unusual? This was happening in every different aspect of, of every different important company in Russia. At Gazprom, there was, like, you know, 50 more examples. At the National Electricity Company, there was 50 examples. At the National Savings Bank, at the Oil Pipeline Company, basically... So,
0: so, did you ever do the maths and work out how much had been stolen from, by these kleptocracks, by these oligarchs from the state?
1: well I believe that over the last 20 years, um, about a trillion dollars has been stolen by the people closest to Putin... From the Russian people,
0: that's an astonishing number, Bill.
1: Well, it's particularly astonishing when you look at the effect that it's had on on the regular people of Russia. So, this is money that should have effectively gone to the people of Russia, and so as a result, the the male life expectancy during the nineteen nineties was like fifty seven years. People, you know, they didn't have any heart med- that, no, no heart medication at the hospitals. If you needed a you know simple procedure, you couldn't get it. On the main highway from Moscow to Estonia, part of the road is not even paved. I mean, you know, it's it's just crazy. It's just crazy how everything, it, it, the state has been completely hallowed out because all the money that should have gone to the people of Russia has gone to a group of about a thousand people.
0: So you were having this battle with the oil oligarchs. What happened then? And the first few years, backed by Putin because he wanted to take political power, Back from the oligarchs, they were getting too powerful financially. So, so it, was, it, it went well. Then what happened?
1: Well, so then, then there was a moment in time when Vladimir Putin decided that he wanted to win the war with the oligarchs. In order to do that, he arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky. He was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. And he arrested him, put him on trial, and then allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial and when you're on trial, you sit in a cage. So the television cameras have this guy sitting in a cage. Now, imagine you're the 17th richest oligarch in Russia. You turn on your TV and see the richest one sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? Someone going to focus the mind. Certainly focuses the mind. And they're all... So after Hordakovsky was convicted and sentenced to 10 years of hard labor in Siberia, the other oligarchs <laughs> went to Putin and said, hey, Vladimir... You're my best mate now. How, how, how can we avoid that like, same thing happening to us? And, and Putin said, it's real, real simple, 50%. Not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, 50% for Vladimir Putin personally. And at that moment in time, Putin became the richest man in the world.
0: So how do you know that? So So you have accounts that have to be filed for Gazprom, and you can look through those accounts and you can do forensic accounting and you can work out that there's, you know, the, the money stolen. How do you know then the deal was for the money that's stolen half goes to Putin? How do you know he's the richest man in the world?
1: First of all, it's very important to know that Putin doesn't have his name on anything. So, because if he if he had his name registered on a bank account in Switzerland or an asset share registry then somebody could wave around that piece of paper and blackmail him. And Putin, who is the sort of former KGB agent, king of blackmail, knows that he doesn't want to ever have anyone have that power over him. And so all of his arrangements are done through what I call oligarch trustees. These oligarchs who gave him 50% hold 50% for him. How do we know that? We, we, we can't prove it exhaustively, but we can prove it anecdotally. So for example, there is a, an enormous dwelling. I don't want to call it a house because it's... it's Palace? Palace, maybe. Uh, yeah, palace, chateau. Chateau <laughs> on the Black Sea near Sochi. This construction um, cost a billion dollars, a billion dollars to build. It's probably the most expensive private residence in the world. This construction, this palace, the chateau, whatever you want to call it, was built for Vladimir Putin. And the person in charge of the accounts doing all the construction and paying all the suppliers is a man who fell out with Putin and fled the country with the documents and he's been on the record with the documents showing that this is Vladimir Putin's palace and it was paid for by Russian oligarchs and that's just one of many examples there's another great example Vladimir Putin's best friend from childhood is a man named Sergei Roldugin Sergei Roldugin Is a cellist, and when the Panama Papers came out, um, every country had its sort of star, and the star of the Russian part of the Panama Papers was Sergei Roldugin, Putin's best friend. Mm. He's a cellist, and when you get down into the details and look at all these um, documents from the Panama Papers, you have these enormous financial transfers to Mr. Roldugin, which amount to two billion dollars. That's a good salary for a cellist he's the wealthiest musician in the world and by far the wealthiest cellist. <laughs> All sorts of young people now going out to take, take cello lessons in <laughs> Russia. Um, but Roldugin, uh, if you read the documents, so here's a cellist, and he's getting paid a $76 million investment advisory fee from an oligarch. Um, what's he doing? He's not investment advising anybody. He's a cellist. And so, it's obvious that, that, that this is part of the Putin trustee arrangements.
0: Okay, so an astonishing trillion dollars stolen By Putin and his oligarch makes from the Russian people over the last twenty years, does that make his
1: regime the biggest kleptocracy there is? There's no question. Nothing even comes close. No other countries. No other country even comes close. It's it's just. I mean, Russia should be. um, I I would call it an upper middle class country, but instead, Russia is a uh, a destitute country, and people are struggling to survive. Um, because of this.
0: And you're married to a Russian. I am. I don't want to probe too much on your family in Russia, but you have first-hand experience of what life is like out there. Could you just tell us
1: then? Well, so, so basically, inside of Moscow and a few other very select places, it looks amazing. It looks truly world-class. The moment you drive five miles out of Moscow, it turns into the most destitute country you'll ever see. You know, people have to grow potatoes to survive through the winter. They have no roads. We can't even imagine that here. There's, there's roads and trains and every... I mean, you know, there's no, no free land here at all. There, there, are, there are no roads. Or, or if there were roads, they've all been washed away. Or they've become dirt roads um, in most of the country. Um, there's alcoholism, people dying at very young ages, no health care. You know, the, the, the nurses have to become prostitutes to support themselves. It's just an absolute, complete failure of a country.
0: Clearly, this is a country in some ways you love. Could I say that?
1: Well, I I, I love... I mean, Russians are... uh, The average Russian is a very decent, warm, honest person, hardworking. Um, The problem with this country is is that they have a population of 141 million people, and 140 of them are totally decent people, but there's 1 million criminals occupying the country and taking everything from the rest.
0: Almost like Tsarist Russia.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty close to it. It's, it's like an African dictatorship in Europe. So at
0: this point, Putin no longer regards you as his mate. So what happens next?
1: So after Putin does his deal with the oligarchs, when I start exposing the corruption of the companies, I'm no longer exposing his enemies. I'm exposing his own 50% personal financial interest. And on November uh, 13th, 2005, I was flying back to Russia. I had been living there 10 years. I was the largest foreign investor in their country. I was stopped at the airport. Um, I was arrested. I was detained for 15 hours at the airport detention center.
0: That must have been pretty scary.
1: Well, it was scary um, thinking that I might be sent off to Siberia. But thankfully, um, at 11 a.m. the next morning, they... Um,
0: but, but, but you must, you know, can I take you back to that? My My brother was stopped at American immigration he said that was for four hours he said that was pretty scary that's america so what must you be thinking
1: i thought that they were going to send me off to siberia and that that i would probably die in a russian prison when they frog marched me up to that air flight flight to deport me if you've ever seen the movie argo and when that plane took off, I was just the happiest guy in the world, knowing that I was going back to London, not going to Siberia. So they deported
0: you. Then what happened?
1: When I realized that that, this was, that the Russian government had turned on me, um, they tend not to be so mild in there when they turn on you. And I thought, OK, being kicked out is you know, obviously not good for business, but it's, not, it's hardly a harsh sanction. And so I said, where else could they get me? And the answer is I had a lot of people on the ground there and I, uh, and a lot of money invested in their country. And so, I organized an emergency evacuation of my people. I got How many? With family members, probably about 20. Um, and I got them safely out of the country, here to the UK. And then we um, quickly and quietly sold every last security we held in Russia. They, they didn't arrest my people and didn't seize any of my assets. And I thought, okay, phew, uh, you know, uh, that was a close call, but everything is is okay now. I set up a new fund to invest in other parts of the world. And then 18 months after I was kicked out, I got a frantic phone call from the last person left in Russia on my team, which was a secretary, sitting in an empty office. And I kept the office just in case the, the storm ever blew over. And she said, there's 25 police officers raiding our office right now. And then I discovered that 25 more officers were raiding the office of an American law firm that we used in Moscow, who had all of our documents. And the officers seized all of the documents from the law firm. And the next thing we know, we no longer own our investment companies. They've been fraudulently re-registered to a man who had been convicted of manslaughter, um, who had they let out of jail early to put his name on the documents. The police basically seizing our documents, working with a murderer to steal our companies, which were empty at this point because we had gotten everything out, but they didn't know that. And so at this moment, I'm terrified, not for economic reasons. I'm terrified because uh, if the police are working with murderers to seize our companies, God knows what else they're going to do. And um, I hired the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia, who was a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. And Sergei uh, was one of these people who could do 10 things in the time it took others to do one. And I asked him to go investigate and figure out what they're doing and help me stop it, because this is pretty horrifying. And so Sergei goes out, and he does a a very uh, rigorous investigation... And he figures out the answer. And there were two parts to their scam. The first part was they wanted to steal all of my money, but they got to me too late. They, they, when they went to all of our custodians and banks in Moscow, there was no money left. However, Sergey discovered that the second part of their scam did work. And this is truly cynical. The second part of their scam was that after I sold everything in Russia, and we had, we had declared a profit of a billion dollars to the Russian government, and we paid $230 million of taxes to the Russian government. And what Sergei had learned through this investigation was that the $230 million of taxes that we paid, the people who stole our companies went back to the tax authorities and said um, there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing. Um, The companies didn't earn a billion dollars. They earned zero. They came up with some clever, illegal way of presenting that. And they said, therefore, the $230 million of taxes paid last year was paid in error. We want it back. We want it back. And so- They applied for a $230 million tax refund, which was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. They applied for it on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas, and it was approved and paid out the next day, Christmas Eve, the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. And we were just amazed. I mean, this wasn't our money that was being stolen. This was the Russian government's money that was being stolen.
0: Can they now come off to you? Because they say, well, you haven't paid the tax.
1: Well, um, they, they've they've done all sorts of crazy things since then. But let me tell you what happened next. So, so, so Sergey um, testified against the police officers involved, th- thinking that you know this is a crime against my country. I should be you know sort of uh, you know patted on the back for exposing this. But instead of being um, patted on the back, the same people he testified against um, came to his home five weeks later on the twenty fourth of November two thousand eight. They arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention where he was then tortured to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with uh, 14 inmates and in eight beds and left the lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They moved him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the money and did so on my instruction. And Sergei absolutely refused to do that. He was a man of, of incredible principle and integrity. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was just not something he would do. And as a result, the torture got worse and worse and worse. Um, he ended up getting terrible pains in his stomach, um, losing 20 kilos and being diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones. He needed an operation. The operation was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. Um, They came to him right before the operation, again asked him to sign a false confession. Again, he refused. In, In retaliation, they moved him to a prison that had no medical facilities. And at that prison, his health went into a terrible, unbelievable downward spiral. He went into constant agonizing pain. They refused him all medical attention. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests for medical attention. All of those requests were either ignored or denied in writing. And on the night of um, November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition. And on that night, the authorities um, put him in an ambulance and sent him to a different prison. But instead of putting him in the emergency room, uh, they chained him to a bed. Um, and eight riot guards uh, came into the cell and beat him with rubber batons until he died. That was November 16, 2009. He left a wife and two children. He was 37 years old.
0: You say this quite calmly, but what, what are you feeling inside you?
1: Rage. I feel rage 10 years later. Um, I, I, I could not in my... Um, in my after, after hearing the, the news of his murder the next morning, I couldn't carry on with my life the way it was before. I, this uh, is
0: a life-changing.
1: Completely. As a for dev- you. Completely changed my life 180 degrees. I, I, I made a vow the next day to his memory to his family and to myself, that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and devote all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energies to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I'm no longer a businessman. I'm a full-time justice activist. And um, and that's that's all I've been doing.
0: A capitalist to an activist via a communist grandfather.
1: Yeah, I think I'm. It's it's uh, it's a it's a, I'm a, I'm in a, a group of one. There's very <laughs> v- very very few hedge fund managers that become human rights activists, and certainly none <laughs> whose grandfather were the head of the American Communist Party.
0: So the Magnitsky Act, what does it do? When did it make come into American law? This is this was your response to what happened.
1: Well, I first tried getting justice in Russia, and Putin got involved personally, circled the wagons, exonerated everybody. Um, promoted and gave state honors to some of the people most complicit. And so I said, if we can't get justice inside of Russia, we need to get justice outside of Russia. And how do we get justice outside of Russia? Well, the answer is the people killed him for money. They killed him for $230 million. And they don't keep that money in Russia. They keep it in the West.
0: And this is a general thing of kleptocracy. The states they steal the money from, they don't leave it there. They always take it out. Because yeah, they, they in the future, take, somebody else might take, take course, it from them.
1: It was easy to steal. It'll be stolen from them. Exactly. They, they, so they always will,
0: take it out the country. They, they,
1: they like rule of law when it comes to their money. <laughs> but,
0: they don't, but, the, but they don't like rule of law in their own countries because they like to steal the
1: money. Right. They, they'll steal, kill, imprison, torture for the money. But then they want to enjoy the money in the West where their money is safe where their family is safe, where they can enjoy a rule of law, property rights, and all the good things that we have to offer.
0: So pretty much all kleptocrats money launderers, whatever, they don't leave the money there. They always bring it into the Western banking system. Always, and this is the
1: weakness. Always, always, always. It's the weakness, but it's also the opportunity.
0: They have to bring it into the yeah, Western banking right. system, which gives us or gives you Leverage. an opportunity.
1: There, there we go. So there, this is the Achilles heel. During, during the um, Khmer Rouge, they weren't going on vacation to Saint-Tropez. But I guarantee you all these guys in Russia who were involved in Sergei Magnitsky's killing are going to Cyprus and Saint-Tropez and Aspen and all sorts of other... London
0: Home, Mayfair. Exactly. Educate their children at British private schools.
1: Uh, Exactly. Swiss private schools send their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan, send their wives to Miami. They love the West. They love the safety, security, and property rights of the West. And And,
0: and you you, you thought this is the way to go after them.
1: This is the way to go after them. This is what they covet. And I I went to Washington shortly after Sergei was murdered, and I told the story of what happened to him to two senators, a Republican Senator John McCain, who's no longer with us, and Democratic Senator uh, Benjamin Cardin, who is still in in the Senate. And I told them the story, and I said, can we freeze the assets and ban the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky? And they said, yes, we make legislation in Washington. And they created the Magnitsky Act, which was originally just for Sergei Magnitsky, and they launched it, and the moment when they launched it, all these other victims started coming forward and saying to the senators, "You found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. This is what they care about. They're, they care about their money. Can you sanction the people who killed my father, my husband, my brother, my aunt?"
0: But the law is it just going after those that killed Sergei Magnitsky, or or is it a more generally written law?
1: Well, so after about a dozen of these people came forward. These two senators said, "Wait a second! We're onto something much bigger than the Magnitsky case. This is this could apply to all human rights abusers in Russia." And so they widened. They added sixty-five words to the law to include all gross human rights abusers in Russia. And there wasn't a pro-Russian murder lobby in Washington at the time. And, <laughs> and when it went for a vote, it passed ninety-two to four in the Senate. It passed eighty-nine percent of the House of Representatives, and it became a federal law on December fourteenth, two thousand
0: twelve. Pretty soon after the, the murder of your lawyer.
1: It was, a, it was at lightning speed compared to anything else that's ever happened. And, and, and the probability of getting a law passed in the United States, it's like harder than winning the lottery.
0: OK, so what does the law do now then? How can it be used?
1: Well, so what happened was after the law was passed, Putin went out of his mind. He got crazy. He banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. He made it his single largest foreign policy priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And these two senators said, wait a second, if Putin hates this so much, we're onto something huge. Why should the dictators in Nicaragua or Angola or Myanmar get a better deal than Vladimir Putin? Let's expand this to all these guys. And let's also expand it from human rights to kleptocracy. And that became the Global Magnitsky Act. And the Global Magnitsky Act, um, again, you know, who, who could argue against it? In December of 2016, as President Obama was out the door, the Global Magnitsky Act was signed into law, and now applies to bad guys everywhere. And on the same day as the Global Magnitsky Act was signed into law, the Estonian parliament unanimously approved an Estonian Magnitsky Act. And then following that, the Canadians unanimously approved a Canadian Magnitsky Act, a global Magnitsky Act. And then after that, the Lithuanians, and then the Latvians, and then here in the UK, And very recently, the um, uh, EU has now approved in principle an EU Magnitsky Act. And this has become the absolute sort of technology for dealing with bad guys, kleptocrats and and killers, because um, they keep their money in the West.
0: Isn't one problem, though, identifying the people? You know, you talked about Putin. His name's never on a bank account. His name's never on a company register. His, you know, global banking industry... Um, many corporates. There are regulatory and tax havens all over the world. And the the problem is finding the people. Isn't that, you know, finding where the money's gone and the name associated with the money?
1: Yes, sometimes yes. I mean, so money laundering... I'm
0: told on the side of your office... There is lots of names and lots of arrows and lots of companies, shell companies and various tax and regulatory havens. You're trying to work out where the money goes.
1: Well, everything leaves an indelible trail. It's just a question of how hard you have to work to get to that, that information. And there's a lot of people working on the other side. There's lawyers and company formation agencies and PR people and investigators in London all working for the bad guys trying to help them hide their money. But we've been working for 10 years trying to find the money in the Magnitsky case. And we found it all. And, and we found everything. You and found it all. We found it all. And there's a ton of, of people who were complicit in the West in this whole thing. And we have launched criminal complaints in two dozen countries. And there's now 16 live uh, criminal investigations.
0: For the advisors that help the kleptocrats.
1: Well, the, the banks who are, who are working on it, the, the advisors, um, the people who receive the money, all, all this kind of stuff. So, so it might be that, you know, somebody is acting as a front for somebody else, and all of a sudden their accounts are frozen.
0: So the law goes after the advisors as well as the owners of the stolen money.
1: Well, there, there's three laws that that work in our favor. There's the Magnitsky Act, which goes after these people, and there's nearly 200 people or entities on the U.S. Global Magnitsky List, and they come from just, I mean, many dozens of countries. There's African warlords, Israeli kleptocrats. There are. Burmese generals there's Nicaraguan security officials there's all sorts of bad guys on this list and what it does and this is really important that's
0: that's the first thing so you go after the the people that have stolen the money and then and then
1: And, and and by the way let me just explain how powerful this is that when you get put on the Magnitsky list every bank in the world stops doing business with you the moment that you're on that list. And why do they stop doing business with you? Because they don't want to be in violation, principally, of US Mm -hmm. Treasury sanctions. Because if the Treasury finds out, they fine them three times the amount of money. And so you become a non-person in the financial world the moment you get added to the Magnitsky List.
0: And is this because of the power of the American financial system? Any American bank that is dealing with a bank that takes stolen money, will penalize you very heavily. Is this because of the power of the
1: American financial system? It's the power of the American financial system. And when the EU signs up for this thing, which they will, it will be the power of the EU financial system as well. And no bank in the world wants to be fined by the US or by the EU for doing business with sanctioned individuals. And and so it, you become a non-person the moment that you get added to this Magnitsky list. So, that,
0: so that's the first thing. Then what about going after the advisors?
1: There are many laws are already in existence that that are against receiving the proceeds of crime, facilitating money laundering, etc. They're not very strong, but we've succeeded in getting 16 criminal investigations open, uh, more than $40 million frozen, and um, a lot of people and a lot of bankers who are facilitating this stuff under criminal investigation. And um, there's a major, major money laundering scandal in Scandinavia, which has been driven in part because a lot of banks in Scandinavia were involved in owning Baltic banks, banks in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, that were involved in hundreds of billions of dollars of money laundering, including money laundering connected to the Magnitsky case. Russians. Russians, Kazakhs, all, all Ukrainians, all sorts of people from that Aaron. Because they're nearby. The what happens is the, the, the kleptocracies of Russia and all the former Soviet countries where, where like there's no rule of law. They need an EU countries in which to send money to. They can't, you can't send money from Russia to London to buy a Belgravia house because there are certain standards at, at British banks. However, you can send money from Russia to Moldova, to Cyprus, to Estonia, to Latvia, and then to London. and then by the time the, it gets some banker in London gets a, a transfer from Latvia in a let's say a UK. registered company, they're not asking any questions anymore so we we discovered that there is one bank in uh, Estonia that was owned by a Danish bank that had a 400% return on equity. Now this may not mean anything to anyone other than a financial analyst like myself, but basically a bank... Um, well,
0: it basically means for every pound of capital that you have, you're making four pound a year. Right. Which is extraordinary in a world of interest rates where you don't even get a penny back a right, year. Right, right.
1: Exactly. So, so I mean, it's just it's just phenomenal. Any,
0: any finance director would look at that and think to themselves.
1: Well, I mean, a highly successful bank, you know, that's really doing well would have a 15% return 15, on equity. 15, not 400. Right, exactly. And so so this little branch down in Tallinn in Estonia had a 400% return on equity. And this was going on for years. And And like the guy at the head office... Um, either knew about it and just didn't, um, you know, just wanted, I mean, he was just too happy with the money, or he was too stupid to even ask the question.
0: Bill Browder speaking to me, and his story doesn't finish here. It should be noted that the Russian cellist, Sergei Waldugin has denied that he is close to any Russian public figures and that he is not a businessman. The Kremlin has also suggested that the recent what they call information attack against Waldugin, and I quote, does not correspond to reality please click onto part two to hear the rest from Bill, but also to hear from Max Hayward from anti-corruption campaigning organisation Transparency International, and also Mark Campbell, Director of Capacity Building at ICAEW.